0: Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. I love that hymn. At this time, let, it, let us orient our minds to the exposition of the word. So I invite you to take a Bible and turn to James 5. James 5, we're nearing the end of our exposition of this letter. And this morning we're going to be beginning a new... Series, really. Series called How to Handle Suffering. In my ministerial training, I had to read and critique many books. Countless books. And I'll never forget one little book that I had to write a review on. It was a short book called Good Grief by a man named Granger Westberg. He was a gentleman who started out as a Lutheran pastor in the Midwest, turned hospital chaplain, turned university professor at a secular institution. And I had to be honest with my professor and my review. I didn't like the book very much. In his book, he identified ten stages of grief. And in the two pages... That I had. To give my view of the book. I noticed that. His argument. Was lacking. Exegetically based arguments. But it was full. chock full. With psychobabble. And what I mean by that. If you've never heard me use that term. Psychobabble. Here's what I mean. Instead of majoring on key biblical texts, to serve as the foundation for your view, in this case, grieving, many, like Mr. Westberg, appealed to unspiritual and worldly authorities based on an atheistic worldview to make his argument. And in doing so, failed miserably to convince me and my classmates, I wasn't the only one, that his 10-step process of grieving was unhelpful. On the contrary, excuse me, he felt that this was helpful. I thought it was unhelpful, unprofitable, insufficient, and perhaps even detrimental. But not to worry. You don't have to be sad that that book would not be helpful to you. Because we don't require man-made, psychobabble-laced material to educate us believers on how to handle suffering in a Christ-honoring way. All the mental health gurus can keep their unbiblical concepts to themselves. Because we don't need them. We have in our possession the infallible, inspired, inerrant, sufficient... Word of God. Amen? And what you're saying, if you believe that the Word of God is sufficient, then what you mean is it's sufficient. We don't need unbelievers telling us how to do life. Because we have God, through His Word, that tells us how to do life. In the Word, we we learn how to handle suffering the right way, the Christ-honoring way. And we need to go to James 5, 7 to 11, where he provides us with a six-step process to handling suffering in a Christ-honoring way, not a Christ-dishonoring way. Let's read James 5, 7 to 11. The Word of our God reads, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You, too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, we count those blessed who endured, who have heard of the you have heard of the endurance of job and have seen the outcome of, his, of the lord's dealings, but the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So notice what I just read there's no command to pray for relief, there's no excuse. To question the goodness of God. There is no plea for deliverance. There is no command to demand prosperity. And there is no mention nor hint of any idea that suffering is abnormal or accidental. I must say that we need to recapture a biblical view of suffering. Which I think we did when we studied James 1. But that was almost a year ago. Now we've come back full circle to the topic of suffering. And here at this text, we learn not merely the purpose of suffering, which is to test the authenticity of your faith. God gives you suffering to test you. We know that. But we learn how to handle it in a very practical manner in this, in this passage this morning. Again, there are six steps that will enable you as a professing Christian To handle suffering the right way. The Christ honoring way. The first step we're going to go pretty deep in today. Because it demands a lot of doctrinal instruction. The first step to handling suffering the Christ honoring way is to focus on Christ's return. Focus on Christ's return. Let's read verse 7 and 8 again. Therefore be patient brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. In the beginning of verse 7, notice this new section starts with a therefore. When you see a therefore in the Bible, as good exegetes, you need to rewind and figure out why the therefore is there for. Usually what you see is a biblical writer give an indicative. You heard me say this before. A biblical writer gives an, an indicative, which is a statement of truth, a fact, and then an imperative, which is a command to do something. For example, Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, you did not learn Christ this way. You have put on the new self which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Indicative. That's happened to you. Christian, you have been made new. You have been put in the likeness of God. That's true. Therefore, hinge, lay aside falsehood, speak truth. You are a Christian. Therefore, be angry, do not sin. You are a Christian, therefore let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. You're a Christian. Therefore, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. Now I, I, I bring this detail out because this order is very this order is crucial. If you, if you start with an imperative, a command, and end with an indicative, which is a statement of fact, then you end up with a works-based order false religion if you say i'm a true speaker i'm really kind i'm a nice person therefore i'm a christian you've just aligned yourself with a cult an apostate religion you are not a true speaker you are not kind and that makes you a christian you're a christian and that should make you a true speaker see the order? You see, that's important how people get that wrong. Here, James uses, therefore, at the start of chapter 5, verse 7, which redirects us to what he stated in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5, where he sharply condemned the unrighteous rich for abusing the righteous, for abusing the suffering, for being starved to death who were not being paid the wages that they were owed. It's just focus uh, to comforting the persecuted by instructing them to do something. To have a certain attitude in the midst of their suffering at the hands of bad people. Because the rich people, they will have their day in court. Therefore, brethren, since that's going to happen... That's, that's a fact, be patient. In essence, James is saying, brothers, those rich people who, who starved you will face God. They'll get what's coming to them. Therefore, be patient. The Greek imperative here, translated be patient, comes from makros, which means long, and thumos, which means anger. So literally, this word, Patience in the scripture means to be long-tempered, which is often translated as well as long-suffering. So we need to understand the deeper meaning of patience here. Like a lot of biblical terms, we kind of read our contemporary definition into it and then apply it like that. But patience in a biblical sense with regard to your outlook on life does not simply mean just sit tight. Hang out. Chill out. Just wait a minute. It doesn't mean keep a lid on it. Hold your horses until the circumstances change. Because when we say be patient, we mean just let some time go by before you act and pursue what you want. Right? You want this this job. Oh, just just wait. Your time will come. If you're young and you want to get married, we say. Mm. Just chill out. God will send the right person along. right? Well... That's not what James is getting at here. He's talking about the Christian life, big picture, and specifically in dealing with people. Patience does not boil down to back off. God is commanding you to be long tempered or long suffering with respect to handling conflicts in your own personal, and I would add, professional relationships. Patience does not equal idleness, laziness, or cowardice. It does not mean you are to condone immorality or tyranny. Because sometimes we do confuse patience with fearful, passive indifference, don't we? But patience, biblically defined, has to do with long-suffering, a long-suffering attitude you are to adopt toward other people. And if we are to consider the present context, that includes people who you think has wronged you. God is the avenger, which has been made known to us in the previous passage. So we need to let things go. To break it down, to give you the NLT translation, we just got to let things go. Don't dwell on them. Because if somebody has wronged you, God has record of it. And he will deal with it. And you might say, (laughs) that's easier said than done. I agree. It's hard. It's hard to let things go when you think somebody has wronged you. But if James is telling these poor, suffering people at the mercy of unjust, unrighteous, rich people who are causing them to starve. I think it makes it a little easier for us when we consider that context. Well, then you might ask, well, how long? How long am I supposed to be long-tempered with people that don't like me or wrong me? Until you had enough? Till you're fed up? Till you reach your boiling point? Until you're old and gray-haired? Then can you react the way your flesh compels you to? Well, James says, with apostolic authority, we are to be patient forever. That's it. He says very clearly, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, be long-tempered, until the coming of the Lord. The word coming in this verse translates... Parousia, which means presence. It was applied in secular Greek to the arrival of a king or dignitary. And later it was applied in the New Testament to refer to someone's visit, like in 2 Corinthians 7, where Paul wrote, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus went there he was present with the depressed and They were comforted by his presence. So it was from that background that this technical use of the word parousia developed. The whole theology is built around the word parousia. And if that has not been comprehensively taught to you, then it might be new. The term parousia has been and still is an important term early Christians consistently used the word to refer to the coming of Jesus at the end of history to judge the wicked and deliver the saints. And it remains so that it's the most commonly used eschatological technical term to refer to future, end times, cataclysmal events involving Jesus. However, though, we're faced with an interpretive decision here. Okay? Because... If I'm going to be an honest Bible interpreter and preacher, I have to tell you that it could be used, parousia, to refer to the rapture. It's used that way in 1 Thessalonians 4. But it's also used to refer to the arrival of Christ to earth for the purpose of being present to rule and to bless the millennial kingdom. And the context dictates how the biblical term parousia is to be interpreted. So, again, in James 5 here, we're left with an interpretive decision. Does James refer to the rapture? Or does James refer to Christ coming in judgment to establish his monarchy? Should we put it to a vote? No, I'm just kidding. I'm convinced, based on my study, that it's referring to Christ coming in judgment. To judge and to rule and to establish his kingdom. I can't be too dogmatic about it. But I believe that the case can be made for the second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation. During that time, Christ will defeat the Antichrist. He will destroy evil and he will establish a literal millennial kingdom. And here's why that view is favorable. James had just stressed judgment for unbelievers repeatedly in this letter. So again, the fancy Greek grammar doesn't win the day. It's the context. We understand that the rapture is not about judgment at all. It's Christ meeting his saints in the air, which again will happen in a twinkling of an eye isn't it? But the second coming of Christ after the tribulation is all about judgment. And if James's letter has the theme other than good works, it's judgment. Chapter 1. He wrote that a doubting man receives nothing from God. And that a man that lacks self-control belongs to a worthless religion. Chapter 2, he wrote, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Chapter 3, he wrote that false teachers will a stricter judgment. Chapter 4, he wrote that God is opposed to the proud. And he wrote that God is the one who was able to save and destroy. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, which we just studied... We stumble upon the fate of unrighteous rich men. They will be the subject of fire and they will be subject to the day of slaughter. And so the broad and immediate context of James points us to interpreting parousia in verses 7 and 8 as referring to Christ's second coming to reign, not rapture. Also keep in mind the historical context. The Diaspora, James' audience were Jews who longed for the return of a literal messianic ruler who was coming to forcefully and physically usurp the oppressive, corrupt world domination of Rome. And so removing the church in the air was not likely what James had in mind. So now that we've established that, Note that this parousia includes much more than the idea of an initial evasion. You know, because when we think of the second coming after the tribulation, we just think of Jesus on a white horse. Right? Like a hero coming to win the day. But that's only a small part of it. The parousia, which again literally means presence. Jesus coming on a white horse to judge and to be present. And to help us be precise and educated with this matter, that eschatology isn't something that's often taught and discussed, uh, I want to do something a little abnormal, and I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 24. Please find a Bible and follow with me. I want to read Matthew 24 with you for clarity's sake. Every now and then it's beneficial to turn to a lengthy cross-reference if it helps us to be more accurate and clear and precise in our interpretation. Especially with regard to a theology where there is so much weighty and personal effect on your personal view of who Jesus is. And as you're turning there, keep keep in mind the truth that it would be a gross understatement to say that What Jesus says in Matthew 24 is often ignored by mainstream Christianity. That focuses on a Jesus of all-inclusivism. And a churchianity that has become akin to completely omitting it from their doctrinal standards. So as we read Matthew 24, in order to shed more light on the parousia, Know off the bat that it is the position of this church that we see the Olivet Discourse taking place after the rapture, during the seven-year tribulation, and before a literal millennial kingdom, which means we are called what theologians call premillennialists. Now follow along as I read Matthew 24 beginning in verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, which just is a hill where you can see a panoramic panoramic view of Jerusalem, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things, the things referring that Jesus said in verse 2, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your parousia? And of the end of the age. Jesus answered and said to them. See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place. But that is not the end. For nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you. Who is the you? That's every believer on the planet. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Think about that. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which has which was spoken through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, which is the temple. Let the reader understand. that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. So he's talking of a future event as if it's already happened. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says to you, Behold, there is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, Even the elect behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the the inner rooms, do not believe him. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the. Parousia of the son of man be. Wherever the corpse is. There the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then the the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end to the sky to the other. Drop down to verse 36. But of that day, an hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the parousia of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the parousia, the son of man, be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Now stop right there for a second. Everything I just read up to this point they were all future indicatives. Something that's going to happen in the future that's factual. Next comes that little hinge word that I described earlier in the sermon, therefore. preceding a present imperative. A command that we're all to obey all the time as long as we shall live until the parousia. Now look at verse 42. Therefore, be on alert. Because you do not know which day the Lord Jesus is coming. So consider what we were just exposed to in Matthew 24. All of the tribulation events. Jesus warns his disciples about what's going to take place before his coming. And so, do you see how James 5, 7 connects with Matthew 24? Matthew 24 describes in detail what James is talking about in chapter 5, verse 7. He's intending us to understand that the Lord's coming is referring to a future, unpredictable, cataclysmic event when Jesus physically returns as judge to establish his millennial kingdom after a dramatic tribulation. Now, this tribulation is going to be much more widespread and severe than what you and I have ever seen or read about. And the diaspora, as horrible of a life they had, would have to say the same thing. Just as the tribulation saints will live in the hope of the certainty of Christ's return, we too must live in this present age with that great hope. So if Jesus can tell the tribulation saints to be on alert because I'm coming, and James can tell the diaspora to be patient with those rich people because I'm coming, then we in our suffering must do the same, right? In your suffering, you must live with the hope that Christ is coming. Focus on that. It is that hope that is comforting to those who are in the abyss of suffering. Because they know with certainty that Christ will come and rule. And that will mark the beginning of eternity. So may you learn patience in suffering. Learn patience in suffering, especially with respect to other people. Because you can walk away having a long-tempered attitude saying the Lord is coming. He's coming. And by the way, it's going to get a lot worse before he does. Jesus said they will hate you. They will kill you. They will draft you to war. It's going to get bad. But he's coming. To further reinforce this truth that believers are supposed to be patient in suffering, which is motivated by the Lord's coming, James uses a very straightforward illustration in the middle of verse 7. The farmer waits for precious produce of the soil being patient about it, it until it gets the early and late rains. You know, being from the Midwest, I grew up in an agricultural town surrounded by plenty of farmers. So this picture is very vivid in my mind. I remember how farmers would always talk about the amount of rain we've had. Sometimes it wasn't enough, sometimes it was too much, and sometimes it was just the right amount needed to produce the bumper crop. And I remember as a small child seeing the fear in their eyes and the stress in their voice of not having enough rain. I saw how powerless they were. As these strong, rugged men I looked up to saw how powerless they were to create the desired outcome. And that's what James is getting at here. Just as the man who farms is completely powerless, and unable to grow his crops without the Lord's intervention. He's compelled to be patient. He has no choice but to be patient. And so just as farmers are forced to be long-suffering in their work, from the planting of the seed to the harvest, believers must patiently wait for the kingdom to come. According to James, not only should you be long-tempered in your suffering, we also need to be strong. Look at verse 8. You too be patient. Same word used in verse 7. Strengthen your hearts. In other words, James is saying be courageous. Be resolute. Be firm in your faith in the midst of suffering. Stay the course no matter how hard the trial. And again, the same thing that motivates you to be patient, is the same thing that motivates you to be strong. James ends verse 8 with, Because the parousia of the Lord is near. And, you know, there's been a lot of ink spilled on the meaning of near. How near? When it is this happening? And the fact of the matter is we don't know. So I wish I could tell every theologian just to drop it. Because no one knows, Jesus said very clearly, except the, except the Father. Not even Jesus knows. He, he didn't know then. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if we have a bird's eye view, if we have a big picture view, it's soon. Whether the rapture happens in our lifetime or not, the reality that Christ is coming is imminent. It is the next event on God's calendar, and that should fuel our passion for holiness and service. We should all live with the consciousness that the parousia could occur at any time, and that one needs to make decisions and choose values based on that realization. So it was true in James' day, and so is it is in ours. We need to be patient. Stand firm because the Lord is coming. He's coming soon. That's the first step to handling suffering the Christ-honoring way. It's found right here. In your suffering, focus on Christ and specifically focus on His return. Due to time, that's what we're going to cover today. I'm going to learn the rest of the steps next time. But I think this is a good point to pause and transition to the Lord's Supper. And as the men prepare to serve us, for the next few minutes, think think deeply about what we just read. Think think what It's going to happen before, during, and after the coming. Examine your hearts and ponder about the reality of Christ's kingdom. Because we understand that Scripture says that he comes to judge and rule. With that on your mind, allow the bread and the wine to serve as it's intended, which is to be a sober reminder of Christ's first coming.